we uh, come back together and we'll, uh, we'll talk through as we ask the same questions up here. I'd love to get your input about what you guys have uh, put together, what you remember from what we've talked about, what you remember from Scripture. More importantly than what did pastors say, what does the Bible say regarding what we are asking about this morning? One of the first questions, what are some things baptism cannot do for us or anyone? Anybody have some answers? Excellent. That's a common one, that it cannot save us. It cannot save us. It can't wash away our sins, though we often confuse the idea of water and washing, thinking it'll do something more, and it can't earn us God's favor, which again, some people think that if I do for God, therefore God will give me more grace or God will love you more. Something yesterday, I don't remember where I heard it or read it, just that simple phrase of we can do nothing to make God love us more or less. God loves us as much as he does, and it's his choice not of our merit. So it can't save us, wash away our sins, or earn God's favor. What are some of the biblical reasons for getting baptized? What'd you write down? I'm sorry? The Bible tells us to. What else? Public confession. A confession of of confession of being saved. Not here are my sins, but I'm confessing that I am one with Jesus Christ. Anything else you wrote down? I'm sorry? Yeah, Jesus did it. Here we go. Baptism is commanded. It identifies you with Christ and what he's done for you. It's your testimony that you have trusted and you are going to serve him. That last one's interesting. It's a testimony of what I've done and it's a promise of what I am going to do. So it's got that looking back and promising for what I'm doing in the future. If I'm going to associate with him, I'm going to seek to live a life That exemplifies him to other people. Not just the, I'm saved and I'm good to go. I was doing a Bible study this last week, and uh, we're still finishing up the first section. And uh, the man I'm doing it with said, yeah, you know, I I really, I think people can still lose their salvation. Not that God will take it away, but that they could say, I want to give it back to you, God. And I said, hey, that's that's a really good thought. As in, not good thought, but I understand what you're saying. I think let's go in our study to the next section. And that idea of saying, you know, I'm just... He, he posed this question. He said, because, you know, if, if we get saved, shouldn't we live for God? Otherwise, we could just say, I'm saved, and now I can do whatever I want. And that doesn't make sense if salvation is to be like Christ. Again, that's the promise we're making here. I am with him, and I will live for him. What are some of the differences between water baptism and spirit baptism? You can see them there on page 50. I think, does it divide down on page 50? A little diagram for you. Do you remember some of those differences? Or we can even talk through them since they're in the book. Spirit baptism takes place at the moment of salvation. It's not something we have to do for ourselves. God has given this to us. You are immersed, that same idea, into Christ, permanently joining you to him. Again, when we talk about that eternal security from a few chapters ago, we can relate back to that. It's a spiritual inward reality, and this is done to all believers. Now, as we start to look at what the differences are then for water baptism... It takes place following salvation and not part. Again, it does not save us. It does not earn us that favor from God. It's something separate. You're immersed in the water as a picture of your union with Christ. It's a physical outward symbol, and it should be done by all believers. Is it done by all believers? No, but it should be done by all believers. What are the prerequisites for baptism? What'd you write down? Salvation. Anything else? You're like, wait a second, what do you mean anything else? Let's look at it here. Those getting baptized must be born again believers before they get baptized. They that received his word were baptized. Then they believed and then they were baptized. So when I say to you anything else, is there anything else? Leon. Understanding. 
Leon, that's a really good point. So if we would say biblically is something required, we would say salvation is required. What would be really good for people to know? Why am I getting baptized, right? Most often we hear that question asked, right? And maybe if not up here during that ceremony or during that time, I know it's asked with the deacons, well, why do you want to get baptized? That takes us back to one of the first questions that we asked this morning in our quiz. It's commanded, right? I want to do it to show people that I'm making this promise to Jesus, that I am associated with him. So when we say, is there anything that's required biblically, it's salvation. Would it make sense, though, that we want people to understand what they're doing? Exactly, we would. Why is infant baptism wrong? What would you say if somebody asked you that question? Baby can't make the decision for themselves. And we mean the salvation decision, correct? Yeah, exactly. What else would you say? What's that? They can't meet the prerequisites. Yeah, I can't make the decision to meet the prerequisites. Good job. Did you really want to say that word? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What? It doesn't save. And so the thought that I will baptize my infant so that they can be saved. Um, Just this morning, Val Fry was saying something to Pastor Art, and I think she mentioned that they were told earlier, um, but uh, I don't remember who she was told by, but her religion that she was with before, she was told that, look, if the priest can't get there in time, so I'm going to assume it's Catholicism, to baptize the infant before the infant is going to die, then we give you, the parent, the permission to baptize the infant so that the infant can be able to go to heaven. I mean, that to me is like a whole other level of, well, if I can't make it, anybody can do it. Right? The whole system built around, and again, I'm, I'm speaking off of a small conversation with the, that we had, and so I might not be speaking with all the information, but for someone to make that comment saying, I'm supposed to be the one that does all this God stuff for you, but if I can't be there, you do it yourself. It's okay. Doesn't that just kind of break down a religious system? Right? So we have a couple of these reasons. It doesn't take away the baby's sin. It doesn't get them into heaven. It doesn't make them a child of God. They can't believe prior to being saved, and it gives a lot of people false hope. Almost like that, eh, I got it as an infant, and I'm good to go. Right? During what Jewish meal did Jesus introduce what we know as communion, and why did the Jews celebrate that meal year after year? What meal was it? Do you remember? It was the meal of Passover. And why was it celebrated year after year? Remembrance of? Yeah, the deliverance, what he has done and brought me from, what he has brought me to. They did it at God's command to commemorate his deliverance from the bondage, which involved the spotless lamb being spread around the doorpost. We're familiar with that. Why do we celebrate communion? Jesus commanded. What else are we going to say? To celebrate our deliverance. And that idea, somebody over here mentioned the idea of remembrance, right? Okay. What's that? Fellowship, even with one another, right? When you look back, and we'll look at the text again in 1 Corinthians 11, um, that idea of fellowshipping together, it's something that we did. It's commanded, this do. Not like a, hey, if you want to, but no, I'm telling you, this right here, do this to remember me. He made it to provide a spiritual deliverance. That's what we're commemorating, what Jesus did for us, to help us reflect on Jesus in a busy world. Would you say that at the time of communion, you feel like, I'm able to just pause And take a few minutes apart from everything else to reflect on what God's done for me. I'm not saying we don't do that at other times. But isn't that a nice time to be able to sit with one another and think, he not only saved me, he saved all the other people in this room. And then there's churches everywhere else that are doing the same thing. Right? People that we will never meet have been saved from sin the same way that we have. And we're commemorating that together. Though we're not together with them doing it. 
There are times when we are celebrating what God has done for us. It reminds us of the future kingdom that we will experience with him one day when we will all sit together and fellowship and commune with him in celebration of what he's done. In the original communion service, Jesus used two of the Passover feast elements. What were these elements and what did they represent? What were the two things he used? Okay, we had the bread and the wine. What did the bread represent? Okay, so we see it here. The represents the body of Christ's sacrifice to provide us deliverance from sin. Remember, Luke twenty two nineteen. 19. This is my body which is given for you. When you celebrate communion, keep this in mind. Jesus had a real human body, making him a legitimate sacrifice for all humans. Not just that God killed God. God killed a human being in place of all the other humans. Yeah, he was a little bit different, like way different than you and me. But he was still human and was 100% human in the way that we are. Jesus was sinless, except in that way. He wasn't 100% us that way. Sinless and spotless, making him a perfect sacrifice. He gave himself voluntarily. Um, I think it was Preston this week. We were talking, and he asked the question about, like, well, why didn't Jesus just make it all stop? And the, the best answer I can give is, well, because of you, Right? Jesus could have made it all stop, but because of me. There's that little book that we hand out, or we used to anyway, out at the Welcome Center. He did this just for you. You know, when you start thinking about, like, it was me. If it were just me, Jesus probably still would have done this. That is a weighted, weighted thought of what he did for us. He gave himself as our substitute for you. He gave himself for all of us. Again, the idea of you. Not just a singular, hey, only you who are reading this, but all of you. Who will be reading this. What was the other element that was used? We have the wine. Okay. He used that to represent. He took the cup. Gave thanks. Gave it to them. Saying drink all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament. Which was shed for many. For the remission of sins. Christ's blood was what provided remission. The blood itself gives us the forgiveness. And it seals. Here's what's coming next. This is my proof of what's coming next. Once this happens. What is next will come. It was the seal of what was coming. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That was the penalty that was required. And Jesus said, take mine, not theirs. And it was the shedding that created the remission. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, his son cleanses us from all sins. Only the blood can remove the sin. It's not something else. Not something we do. Not something we can earn. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that has done it already. And God says, here's my gift. If you're willing to take it, take it. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes the suffering, the blood because of them, we are spiritually healed through his death. Not just the death, but even the shedding of the blood that took place during the course of his death. So Christian communion also has an aspect, not of just looking back about what was done and just remembering, but a looking ahead of what Christ will do. And so as we move ahead, we have this same idea promoted in the epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter eleven twenty three. you see right there in the middle, let's see, oh, it didn't work for me this morning. Never mind, I won't use the pointer. Right there in the middle, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. There's the past. 
You see toward the bottom there, in remembrance of me. And then the last verse, for as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes. The future event is not the death of Jesus Christ, but according to this verse, what is the future event that we're thinking about? The return, right? Every time we get together at communion, I mean, think about it. I remember as a kid, that wasn't a lot of what I thought about, that Jesus is coming back. How many of you would say that, you know, I haven't put a lot of thought into Jesus' return when, it, when I'm sitting at communion, right? It's almost that thing that we, we almost overlook. Like, I got to think about what Jesus did. And am I in right standing with him? Am I taking it worthily? And that's important. But we also celebrate the fact that like, hey, this is just temporary. There's so much more to come. And it's going to happen. Like, all this happened just like Jesus said it will. And he's saying, just do it until I get back. You know, it's like you tell your kids, hey, just obey. Obey until I get back. I mean, that's a tall task. But they know you're coming back, right? So we're told to think ahead to what's coming. Do in remembrance of me. New Testament communion, really important service. Because, why? It helps us to commemorate Christ's personal, physical death for us. Reminds us that he is coming again soon. And it helps us, this is neat, to proclaim his death till he comes. Now, I know there's times in our communion service where we say, if you're not comfortable staying and you'd like to leave, feel free to do that. I'm not saying that we should tell people, hey, you have to stay so you can hear the story of salvation. But what I am saying is, isn't that a really cool part of the story of communion? Like, this is salvation all wrapped up in what we're doing here for the next 10 minutes. And for some people who are visual learners, can't that go a long way to express to them what Jesus did for us? That's a whole part of this communion thing that I'm not saying we have overlooked, but it's easy to forget about, that we are representing Jesus to other people, proclaiming his death. So what do you guys think about during communion? Like, Tony, I don't want to tell you. That's why I tell God I'm sorry. Like, that's what I'm doing the whole time. I don't want to tell you those bad things. How many of you would say it's a lot of time I, like, I'm very introspective. I'm thinking about confessing sin to God, right? Yeah, and, and I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not, I'm not saying that's, that's, that's a horrible thing. That's what I was taught as a kid, and I think that's a nice time. I mean, there's all that time we should be confessing sin, but to sit down now and to say, am I in right standing with God? Like, hey, visit the doctor. It's time to check up. What's wrong? What needs to be fixed? This is the time to sit and do that. How many of you, you take time, sometimes, maybe all the time, maybe sometimes, to think ahead to Jesus coming back? Anybody, you've done that before? Yeah? How many of you take time to pray for other people that you know? How many of you take time to listen to the music that's played? How many of you wish there wasn't music played? I mean, they're like, we can go back and forth, back and forth. It's kind of like, does there have to be one specific thing that we're thinking about or doing when we celebrate communion? And are we wrong to only focus on one thing? I'm going to say no. Like, if we tried to focus on everything that communion is at the same time, That's like you trying to clean every room in your house at the same exact moment. Is it going to happen? Sometimes you have to pick and choose, right? And so we think, like, what am I, my relationship with God? God, what what can you help me? Teach me something about you right now. Uh, For us, well, I think we'll ask that question later. Like, what do you do with kids at communion? How many of you really struggle to figure out what to do with your kids at communion? And, And what I mean is whether they should take it, and then also how do I keep them quiet? Any of you, you ever struggle with keeping your kids quiet during communion? Okay, I'm raising my hand, so if you didn't, I did it for you. Like, I guess it was just... But uh, I remember some parents who, they would be out in the foyer with their kids. They're like, I just can't keep them quiet. 
You know, and, and, and it was like, I get that. That's fine. I remember other parents, I, or I remember me, I pull up pictures on my phone sometimes. Not like of communion related things, okay? To show my kids like, look, here's what Jesus was doing. Here's what was going on. Or we take him to a scripture in the Bible. Or we talk about what it means to pray and confess. I mean, you think about it. I remember as a kid, the time that I learned how to act during communion was only during the communion service. And so I don't get frustrated if I hear parents talking to their kids during a communion service because at some point they need to explain to them what to do, right? You know? But sometimes if we're not involved in that situation, we can get so far removed that we're like, oh, they're showing no respect for God. How do you know if somebody's showing respect for God? It's a time when we examine ourselves, when we focus on ourselves, think about our relationship with Jesus and even showing that to other people. So participating in communion, 1 Corinthians 11. At some point, we're going to go to that text. So if you wanted to open up there now, that would be great. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll read through some of that. But as we get into the idea of participating in communion, um, we ask this question, who's invited and encouraged to take communion per 1 Corinthians 11? How would you answer that? Who's invited and encouraged to take it? Yeah. I'm sorry? All believers, right? We start looking through it down here. It's specifically the believers to whom the letter was written. Again, that word you. Like you who are reading this, I want you to do it. Do we also read the verses though? Right? And so in a way, it's still written to us. My brethren saying other believers, where were, not where, were any discouraged from taking communion per this passage? Was anybody discouraged from taking communion? Okay, that's, that's one. You don't just take it on your own. You take it with the church, okay? Anybody else have another kind of answer? We look here. Was that what you were going to say, Linda? That idea, that idea of worthily, right? When he says, don't be taking it unworthily. So if we're, anyone is being discouraged, it's those that it summarizes you, you're taking it unworthily. He says, I want you all to take it. You're all welcome to take it. But you who are going to take it unworthily, be super, super careful, and from what I understand, I think you guys had talked a little bit about what does that unworthily mean. Who could be guilty of this unworthy, though? When you look in the passage, specifically verse 27, who could be guilty of being unworthy when they take it? Okay. Yeah, if those who have unconfessed sin, if we're going to give it an even more broad explanation, it could be, according to that verse, unsaved, what? Oh, look, Whosoever whosoever is going to take this unworthily. It could be saved. It could be unsaved. It could be those who are no relationship with God, those who have a relationship, but they don't have a close relationship right now. It could be anyone who is choosing to take it in a wrong way. So how serious is it to take communion unworthily? You eat and drink damnation to yourself. I mean, that's not really a word that we throw around like, hey, this is a good thing. We got damnation coming, right? I mean, it's pretty clear that this is not a good result for doing it unworthily. Many are weak. Many are sickly. Many sleep. I was talking with a boy at Calvary Clubs this last week, and we were looking through this passage, and he said, well, I guess people are falling asleep. I know. I said, no, no, that means they're falling dead is what that means, right? What could be involved in taking communion in an unworthy fashion? We get to this. Since communion is a service to remember Christ and primarily his sacrificial death, what are some things we should not be doing during this service? Taking it lightly, like, yeah, it's no big deal. It's flippant. That might be the word that we choose. What else might we want to avoid? Yes, ma'am. 
Yeah, even that idea. I know I mentioned that, like, how, you know, you're looking around, thanking God for what he did for others. But that idea of looking at others like, eh, I'm not so bad compared to, eh, I'm not going to pick any names. So I almost said George, but I didn't want to. So I won't say George. But I'm just going to say, you're not looking around, like, starting to compare yourselves, right? What else? I mean, when you think about it for yourself, what are you scared you might be doing that would be unworthy in God's eyes? Just being yourself. What do you mean by that statement, Ron? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Ron, you said, you said so many good things, and I'm not going to remember them all, like the, to, to speak back to them, but Ron was saying, you know, if, if I'm taking it in a way that thinks that, that I think I need to keep doing more to earn God's favor, can that be considered unworthy? I've discounted what God said is true, and I'm trying to earn it on my own. Or again, looking around and saying, my relationships with those around me. As a kid, you know, you, you think around means just the people who are close. Ron, you said it. If I don't have that right relationship with this family member, that family member, this coworker, my wife specific, you know, you mentioned a couple specifics. Where we take it and we're like, you know, but they're not a Christian, so it's okay. I don't need to worry about that. We'd start discounting how God says we should act towards others. We have the flippant attitude. It's silly. It's no big deal. Disrespectful. Insensitive to sin. Well, God, it wasn't that bad. This isn't the only summary of what unworthy could mean, but this seems like a decent summary. This was me as a kid. I really wanted communion because I was hungry. And I remember my mom saying no. And then I said, but I'm super hungry. And she said no. And then she walked me down to my dad's office. The next day I got saved. Not just so I could take communion. I got saved because I was a sinner. But eating just because I'm hungry, right? Or I'm distracted. Like I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing. I'm just going through the motions. Instead, we should have an attitude that might be something like this. We're respectful. We're serious about what I'm doing. Like there's a lot of weight to this. I can't think back in my mind to somebody that I know died because they didn't take communion the right way. But if God says he could do that, that kind of freaks me out a little bit. Like God says, this is serious. This is something I really want you to do. But be very focused on when you're doing this, what our relationship is like. What should we do, therefore, prior to taking communion? According to verse 28, what do we need to do? Yeah, we need to take time to examine ourselves. We need to take time to be honest with God. And I don't think that means we just need to take time for that five minutes before they get to my row. I'm going to sit in the back today so I have more time to confess sin. Look, I'm telling you, if you sit in the back, those wafers, they taste, those little crackers, they taste a whole lot more salty. I'm just speaking from experience. And one time I took one and I was like, why is this salty? Did we get different crackers? And I was like, no, everybody else must have pushed this one out of the way. I'm just saying. That, that's all I'm, th- I'm... I'm not taking it unworthily. I'm just saying... That's sometimes what I thought about. But look, we need to take time to examine ourselves. And that might mean that, look, I know this is coming. God, this is so serious for me. I want to take some time this afternoon to say, am I in right relationship with God? I want to know, is there something that I need to confess? 
God, I want to be able to confess as much as I possibly can and say, am I doing everything for you? You might have to make a phone call on a Sunday afternoon to a family member to apologize for something. Communion is more than just the event, the time that we spend 15 minutes sitting in here passing things around. So we need to examine ourselves before that time. Now, moving forward in our notes, our books. Then who can and should participate in communion? Only Christians should partake. This next one I thought was good too. Not just only Christians, but all Christians are invited to partake. We use that term, it'll come up later, the idea of closed versus close communion. Should it only be the people who are members of our church? Should it only be the people who believe exactly as we do? All I'm saying is this. It should be all Christians that are invited to partake. Next we go on to this. Only Christians, this is clear, who are in fellowship with God. And you take it a step farther, not just in fellowship with God, but to be in correct fellowship with God means that we also need to be in correct fellowship with other believers, right? If we're not in fellowship with other believers, then we're definitely not in right fellowship with God. Sometimes I think we miss that idea. If I've sinned against others, I've just done sin against them. No, if we sin against others, we've done sin against God through somebody else. So if I want fellowship with God, I need to have fellowship with those who are around me. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And you go on to read the rest of the text there. What four things did the Christians continue doing after they were together, according to this verse? What are those four things? They're being taught by the apostles, okay? What else? Fellowship? What else? Communion, the idea of breaking of bread, the way that we would talk about it today. What else? Prayer, right? We have those there. We have the teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, praying. We are getting together to celebrate our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in doing that, here are ways that we show that unity with one another. What was their attitude toward each other? How would you describe it? It was what? Yeah. Yeah. Initially, when you read that in that section in 1 Corinthians 11, there was a selfish attitude. Hey, I'm here. I'm hungry. Let me go ahead and do this. I'm not exactly, I got to remember what this question, there we go. I wanted to see exactly where they were going with the question. This represents the gathering together for teaching, for fellowship, to break bread, to pray, to continue to get together. We have all things in common. This attitude, whatever it was before, we see a transition to what it is now. In this verse, it's represented as one of unity and the fact that we are caring for one another. Not that like we all need to be equal, but if we see if someone has a need, we're going to seek to meet that need. Not just saying, oh, the church will take care of it, but is there a way that I, as a fellow believer, a brother or a sister in Christ, can help meet the need of another brother or sister in Christ? That's what we see. There's a, a little video series called um, Theo. I know I, I mentioned it one time here in church. It's put out by, put out by a company called Whitestone Media. And they take, they take like big concepts and they show like a 10-minute video to kids about what that concept is all about. And they talk about the early church and what did the early church look like. And sometimes I wonder if we miss the idea of what the early church was. Up to this point in this community, there had not been this association of believers. And suddenly within the community, there's a group of people who is daily meeting together, daily looking to help with the needs of others, spending time in prayer, eating meals together, 
obviously noticed by all those around them. And people start saying there's something different about these people. Not just that they were meeting once, but it was a community in a way that sometimes we don't have just because it's been ingrained to us over the years that church is the Sunday and Wednesday thing or whatever night you pick. But here were people who lived close together who were just like, hey, let's gather in this house. Tomorrow we'll gather in this house. Let's move to this house. Let's move to this common meeting space. So this idea of unity one to another, getting together for communion to celebrate this bond that we have in Jesus Christ, looking ahead to one day when even those we can't get together with will be together. That's one thing that communion can represent. It's exciting to think of it that way. Look up. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 to 22. Let's start in verse 18. Let's see what it says there. And I remember I was talking to, I think it was Pastor John this week. I don't remember. I remember as a kid hearing all these passages. But I remember thinking as a kid, somewhere in the Bible is this passage about how to do communion. And somewhere in the Bible is this other passage about how people got together and they weren't sharing with one another. And forever I kept them separated. But when you bring them together... There's a whole different depth to what communion represented and why it was being done wrong. And like, here's the worthy aspect that you need. So you start there in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper and one is hungry and another is drunken what have you not houses to eat and to drink in or despise you the church of god and shame them that have not what shall i say to you shall i praise you in this name i praise you not and then we have the the passage that we typically read during our communion service that says when you come together you weren't doing it for the sake of the lord's supper you were coming to eat and just to fill your own bellies do that at home when you come together celebrate communion the lord's supper in this way and if you're not doing it in this way you're doing it unworthily and here's the damnation you could be drinking and eating to yourself and then you get to verses 33 34 wherefore my brethren when you come together to eat tarry one for another and the unity idea if any man hunger let him eat at home that ye may not come together unto condemnation and the rest i will set in order when i come Look at what we have here. The Corinthians celebrate communion as part of a larger feast when they gathered together with the church body. But in doing that, they lost the idea of what the purpose was for communion. Their perversion was that they were creating divisions at those times by isolating the rich from the poor. Pastor likes to use this word. You see it in the verses there. The idea of those who have, those who have not. I'm not thinking of others. I'm just thinking of myself. And at the moment, I need this. Oh, yeah, it was communion. Well, it's okay. We'll move on. These divisive acts and attitudes were bad. In verse 22, he throws out all those questions, almost like, what are you thinking? What did you think was the purpose of getting together? You're not even thinking about what God wants you to be doing. Negative attitudes or actions towards others is acting in unworthy manner. And it might not be that this is where that whole idea of stumbling, of doing sin to one another's, to one another we may not perceive what we did as something that was wrong. The individual that we did wrong to may have felt deeply slighted and may have biblical reason to feel that way. Sometimes when it comes to forgiveness, to seeking, to apologizing, we have to think from more than just our perspective. 
God's perspective, the individual we're talking to. And that's where it needs to be a dialogue, not a flippant, hey, I'm really sorry, will you forgive me? There has to be depth to that kind of conversation. So our attitudes, actions towards others, they're pretty weighty when it comes together to have this time for communion. And we need to keep that in mind. Through the Lord's table, what do we do? We look backward to Christ's death, forward to his coming, and inward at our own hearts. I think that's a nice summary. We're remembering what he did, thinking about what he will do, and focusing on what do I need to do now to be in more of a better relationship with him. That's what we do through the Lord's table. Some perversions of communion. You see them there in your book or in your notes. There's the the thought that communion is a means of earning grace. That in doing this, I am earning favor with God. That the more I do communion, the more God will see I'm devoted to him and that I'm associated with him and that I'm trying to obey him. And we take back to these verses, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost for by grace, by grace, just by grace, you're saved through your faith in him, what he's done for you. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of work. Or works, lest any man should boast. We can't earn God's favor, his grace. That's a perversion of what communion is. Another one would be the mass error, what is represented through the Catholic Church. This idea that you see it bolded there in the middle. He did this. He set up this supper for us, this celebration for us, that in order to perpetuate, to keep the sacrifice of the cross ongoing, as in to make that sacrifice happen again and again And again, each time communion is taken, Jesus is being sacrificed again and anew and anew and anew. Is that according to Scripture? Is that what the Bible says? No. For Christ suffered once. He suffered for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but quickened in the spirit. How many times did he suffer and die? Just once. Like once for all. Once and done. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. What words in that passage describe the number of times the priest offered sacrifices? What jumps out at you? How many times he did it? What was that? Often? Often? Daily? What else? Some some of the little things that we might not, we'd often overlook. Every priest. As in not just one guy. If he did it, somebody else had to come do it too. And then another guy had to do it, right? And they're doing it daily. Often. The same sacrifice. Not like it was a new one. But the same thing over and over and over and over again. All these priests every day doing the same thing over and over again. Way, way different than Jesus Christ, correct? Way different. Which word described the number of times Christ has sacrificed? Right at the end there, right? He offers it once for all. One sacrifice for sins forever. Like this once, it's good forever. It's done Once it's been done, it can't ever be replicated. That's the idea that's going on in this passage. And then what did he do after the sacrifice for sins? Right? Don't we kind of wait to sit down usually until we're done? I mean, sometimes when we're tired. But when we're doing something, when we're done, we sit down. He sat down at the right hand of God. What, if anything, does that signify? 
completion, right? Even acceptance by God. Um, think of it this way, right? We've had the snow. We've had the leaves. You get out there and you do the job. How many of you love raking leaves? How many of you love shoveling snow? Good. Now I know who to call on Sunday mornings. No, but right when you finish, what is that feeling that you have when it's done? A satisfaction, right? Yeah, accomplishment. Fear that it's going to snow again. Anybody get that one sometimes? Right? That feeling like it's done. I can sit down. The job is finished. It's completely done. That's the picture, the idea that we can almost relate to. When I'm done with these things, it's all finished. It doesn't need to be done again. Now this metaphor breaks down because we say it snows again. The leaves come again. But that feeling, that sense of accomplishment, what if anything does it signify? He had completed the task for good. Like for completely. Like this will last forever from now on. So when we say that his sacrifice is happening again at communion and again at communion and again at communion, that's to spit in the face of God for what he had Jesus do for us. And to say, God, when you said it in the Bible, I don't believe it to be true. And this is what I think needs to be done. Isn't that kind of what Satan did where he he kind of put himself up above God and said, I know better than you do? That's dangerous territory when we believe and practice that way. The chance, the change of substance error. Jesus said, this is my body. And when he said that, that must mean that this is his body in some way. Uh, The mass holds. This is a quote the pastor took right off the website. I went back and I read it. You can see the website on the bottom there. And it didn't make sense to me. So I wanted to make sure that it was transferred over correctly. It was. And I think it just needs to take out a word and it'll make more sense what they meant to say. The mass holds the place it does in Catholic worship because of the real presence of Christ in the Catholic Eucharist. I think somebody, as they were typing, got confused about what they were going to say next. But that idea that it it is the real presence of Christ. When Jesus um, has deigned to become present in that manner, it automatically becomes the most important form of worship. The two thoughts, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, they're both wrong. One talks about it becoming the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. One of it talks about it being indwelt by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, that kind of breaks down about what the purpose is for communion, right? It's a metaphor, a symbol of what's going on. You think of it this way. Did Jesus ever talk in symbolic nature in metaphors? He called himself the light. He called himself the door. He refers to Herod as a fox. Do you think Herod really was a fox sitting on the throne? Right? That'd be kind of weird talking animal. No, that's fine. Whatever he says goes. This makes a lot of sense. It's a metaphor there. And so that's when Jesus is saying, it's my body, it's my blood. It fits more the way Jesus talked. And if we want to discuss more, what does that, like, can you give me more proof? We could talk about that later. Other common questions about communion. Some things that are brought up. Can we do it at home by ourselves or with a few friends anytime we want? How closely should we police? Should we have communion police walking around like, hey, are you right with God? You know, do we need that? Let's look at a few of these questions as we finish up. Uh, In the New Testament, communion was not to be a private affair held by folk in their homes by themselves. As we look at the text, we see this. Matthew 26 and Luke, both we understand that as the Last Supper is taking place, it's in a public setting with multiple believers together, not just a few people. When we look at Acts 20, upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, we have the example of the early church. Communion text in 1 Corinthians, when you come together into one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, as in you're not coming coming together to do it the right way. Therefore, when you come together, we see that over and over. You believers, all of you, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, you show the Lord's death. It was designed to be a time of publicly presenting Christ 
to one another, to other people. So when you add this all together, it seems apparent that communion was given to be done in and by a church setting. Another question that sometimes comes up, how closely should we police the communion service? That idea of closed versus close. Closed would be the idea of only the members of our church. Close would be those who believe similar to us. Is it our job to police who takes communion? No. Especially when you look at the text. Let a man examine himself and then let him eat or drink. If we would judge ourselves, there's nothing in the text, no example given by Jesus, that it's the job of the pastor or other parishioners to go around and make sure someone else is right. That's on us to figure it out. Why is communion practiced multiple times after salvation, but baptism is to be done just one time? What do you think? Once for all. Okay, so the baptism you're saying is the once he died once. Okay. Any other thoughts? He commanded us to do it over and over. Yep. Anything else? To help us remember his sacrifice. There's a few thoughts to this. Ready? There's this one. That he commanded it to be done repeatedly. As you said, Jane. He commanded to this do remembrance of me. Oh, that same boy that I was talking with uh, this past Wednesday, as we were looking at the communion passage, the question in his book said, how often should we have communion? And he said, once a month. And I said, well, let's see what the Bible says, not what we do at Faith Baptist Church. And he was like, well, as often as? I said, so could that mean we do it every week? Could that mean we do it once a year? Could that mean we do it once a lifetime? You know, he's like, yeah, I guess as often as. And each church could decide what they'd like to do. Although they both picture some of what Jesus did for us, communion does picture more than our moment of salvation and change in lives. So if you had to break it down, they, they both picture the same thing. But I'm a visual guy, and so here's how I picture it. Baptism is all about the moment that I join myself to Jesus Christ. And yet there's also a promise of what I'm going to do later. Okay? Communion is like, there's my moment that I'm with Jesus Christ, and I'm where I promised I would be now. Does that make sense? They're both still, they're both still emphasizing the same thing. not emphasizing they're both acknowledging the same thing there was a moment but one is saying this is what i want to signify my union with jesus christ and in doing that i also want to live for him this is saying i'm making sure that i'm right with god and i'm thankful for what he did but i'm making sure that right now i am right with god and this is my time to do that and make sure that i am living for him the way that i should be this one was commanded to be done over and over this one is just a testimony, not just, that's wrong to say it that way. This one is a testimony of what I've done and what God has done for me. Communion portrays the idea of ongoing fellowship, eating, fellowship with the Lord, reflecting, meditating on him and what he's done, and ongoing fellowship with other believers. It's something that we all do together repeatedly. Other common questions, what about letting our kids take communion before they're saved? Should we use any type of bread and beverage like, hey, whatever goes, goes, What if someone has an allergy to any ingredients in the elements? Pastor said, hey, at this point, if you want to let people know if they have an allergy and they're not sure what we have, they can go ahead and bring their own thing if they want to celebrate in communion. So I'm not saying bring anything, but pastor said, look, it's for us with our kids. We, uh, our kids have two allergies. They have nut and dairy allergies. And so we have to be careful about what they watch, what they watch. Yeah, we do have to be careful of that too. But what they eat. And so in doing that, we went and we checked out the communion crackers to see if they had allergies. If they did have some of those allergies, we would have just brought in our own thing. 
Don't feel like I'm not participating if I bring in my own because I have this allergy. And so that, that's all I have to say about that. But uh, other questions. Should we let kids have communion before they're saved? I'm going to go on the side of no. Because, right? Isn't it? Yeah, right? Is, isn't it about us having that relationship with Jesus Christ already? Here's the other question that, uh, that I know the, the opinions will be different, so I'm not asking you to say it out loud. Should kids take communion before they're baptized? I, mean, I, I know there's, how many of you know you or other people that there's different opinions, right? Some people would say yes, some people would say no. I've had this discussion with people before. Um, I know what we choose to do. And so now I know you're all going to be looking like, what is Tony doing with, with? so um, yeah. Should we use any type of beverage and bread? Like anything goes? What do you think? Remember that idea of taking communion in somewhat of a, a solemn, respectful way? If we used anything, could it easily get very disrespectful? Like we have the gummy, wear, gummy worm section over here. The multi-grain Cheerios. These people are more Frosted Flakes people. I mean, even when you start doing that, does the unity break down at some point? Yeah, that idea is, is true. Look, it's the good news. It's what we're sharing with people. There'll be lots of questions that we could get into here that we won't. But we're looking at the basics and saying, let's find someone to start discipling them, not just in what we believe, but what in the Bible says and take them step by step to help them build that relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're going to get together to celebrate the good news in a few minutes. Let's go ahead and take a break before we come back together for worship this morning.